Hey everybody, this is Alex Merced, and you're listening to Select Star from Data Lake, the podcast. And basically, this will be the first sort of like episode of content. Um, and essentially, the way this will work is that sometimes it'll be me hosting an episode, sometimes it'll be Dipankra hosting an episode, occasionally it'll be both of us. But the idea is generally when we have something to say, we will put out some content, okay? So that way, you guys can learn uh, all sorts of great stuff about the data space. Now, in this first episode, I figured I'd lay some groundwork, since a lot of what we're going to be talking about is data lakes and data lake houses. Uh, we just talk about what these terms mean. So what's a data lake? What's a data lake house? What's a data warehouse? Uh, and so forth. So I'm going to do this at a very high level. So again, if you're probably a experienced data professional, this may seem very high level. But if you're someone new to the data world, this is going to be just the introduction you need to understand sort of the, the big picture. So essentially, let's just chop off the world into two places. There's the uh, transactional world, and then there's the analytical world. Okay, so the transactional world, or sometimes referred to as the OLTP world, is essentially the world where um, your normal everyday applications live in. So when I'm using Facebook or Netlify or Netflix or any of these kind of applications, there it's generally they're handling data for the purpose of me being able to transact you know for me to, be able to create a post for me to deploy an application for me to listen to a song uh, for me to watch a movie okay so there's there's transactions and generally like the way you interface with the data for a transaction is really based on rows okay so you need to go fetch my user profile so that's one row in the users table you need to go fetch that one song I want to listen to that's one row in let's say the songs table um, so generally you're dealing and then sometimes when you add a new song you're adding a row so everything's very sort of like add a row get a row you're not necessarily working with chunks of rows okay and generally you want all the data for that row because you need all the data for that thing for that user for that song so the nature of how you access the data is intrinsically again very row based so the tools the databases that store the data and let you access the data um, Basically, the way we represent the data in memory and so forth is all really built for that kind of transactional world. But there comes a point where every company needs to start doing analytical things. They need to take that data that they've generated from users using their application and other types of data. They may have logging data, voicemail data, all sorts of different types of data. Um, and they need to run analytics on it to drive business insights because business insights allow them to make business decisions that can well make the company more profitable which means everyone gets to keep their job more people get to have a job everyone's happy okay so that's that's the eventual goal um, but what happens as the data gets bigger and bigger and bigger that sort of transactional way of representing data in memory representing data in storage starts to see some bottlenecks. It's just not really ideal for those types of patterns because when you're talking about analytics, you're not grabbing one row or adding a row. Instead, you're grabbing all of the data, but you're oftentimes only grabbing particular columns that you want to examine in particular, particular fields. Um, you know, and you're running cumulative operations on a particular column and things like that. So you start wanting to move over to a more columnar structure of how you represent the data in memory and storage and so forth analytical purposes for your OLAP or online analytical processes okay so basically this means a different set of tools so different types of databases so basically these databases that are sort of geared towards data analytics 
are oftentimes referred to as data warehouses, okay? Yeah, and, th and then I compare them as in the same way because, uh, you know, a database abstracts the way the data is stored. It, it, it abstracts how the data is organized and cataloged and, and then basically abstracts how you access the data through your queries and whatnot. So kind of all one big bundle. A data warehouse is very similar in that sense, um, basically being a platform to store, catalog, and query data. Okay. So essentially what happens is that you need to move your data from your analytical systems, all your transactional databases, over to your generally your data warehouse. So this process of moving data from point A to point B, well, requires you to export the data from point A. Then chances are the data may not be in exactly the right shape for analytical processes. So then you need to transform the data and then you need to load the data in point B. That's referred to as ETL, export, transform, load. Okay, get data from point A to point B. Okay. And, and you know, so far the story's simple. Okay, got it. I have certain things for transactional things, and I got certain things for analytical things, and every once in a while I need to move data from point A to point B. Okay, but it gets more complicated. Generally, your data warehouses can only handle what's called structured data. So this is the data that could fit in a table, columns and rows. Okay, so that's problem one. Problem two, um, you know, the more data you store, generally data warehouses, you're going to pay a lot more to store versus sort of like a pure storage thing like object, cloud object storage. So it can get pretty expensive, okay, on the storage side. And then also running the queries, the cost of running those queries, basically nowadays where you pay for compute, also can be uh, more expensive than alternatives. So when you get this nice abstraction, it can be a very expensive abstraction, the data warehouse, especially for the kind of sizes of you know petabytes uh, you know of data that we're talking about with a lot of these sort of the biggest data names okay so the idea was okay well I can't put all my data in the data warehouse and it would be too expensive even if I could but I know I need that data available for analytics so there need to be something else and this is where the birth of the data lake comes in particularly with a framework called Hadoop so Hadoop basically discovered saying hey, instead of having to pay for a lot of really expensive computers and running a data warehouse on those expensive computers, okay, because again, this is before a lot of the cloud stuff, how about you buy a bunch of cheaper computers with really big hard drives and they can all operate as one big giant hard drive in a sense. And this is what Hadoop did. It basically, you would have a core, and this is generally how most uh, multi-parallel processing uh, applications work where essentially generally you have a coordinator. So generally, you'll, let's say you have 10 computers um, that are a cluster. You'll have one that's referred to as the coordinator. It's the one that's sort of like telling the other nine what to do. That way no one trips over each other. So you'll have like a coordinator node or a master node, and then you'll have all these worker nodes. Okay, and then the worker nodes, essentially they basically will get pieces of a job, okay, from the master node. They do their piece of the job, they report back to the master node, and then the master node then delivers you uh, your your end product. Okay, so this is what like Hadoop would do. So you'd be storing the data across all you know all these computers, but you had one master node that you say, hey, I need to go get this file from. It knows which computers it's on, within or if the data stretched across multiple computers and 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 fetch you what you need. Okay, and that was all fun and good. That allowed you to, again, have a lot of cheaper computers store a lot of data, whether structured or unstructured, because it was just basically a file system. 
and this became known as the data lake. The idea is it's being sort of the lower cost place to put all the stash away all your data. Okay, but then the you know the question also arises like, well, it's nice to store my data, but I'd also like to do analytics on the data. So then you had something called MapReduce as part of this whole Hadoop project. MapReduce was a framework for writing a script in Java. Okay, you'd be writing like these Java uh, programs that would then run uh, using the MapReduce framework to run analytics on a data set that might be stretched across several Hadoop uh, nodes. Okay, so you basically write a script saying, okay, here's the data that I want to an analyze, this is what I want to do to the data, and then it would literally map reduce. Like the name literally describes what it's doing. It's essentially breaking up the job. Okay, um, so if you think of it like mapping over a data set, you're essentially um, breaking up the data set across each node, then each each node will essentially take that that job and apply it to the its chunk of data then now you have a collection of the results from all 10 nodes and you reduce that to one sort of final result okay um, which the master node will then deliver you so that's what MapReduce did but the problem with MapReduce is that it was slow one it was hard because writing Java is not fun um, but two it was slow because basically between every job it had to write the disk so essentially it would do the thing and then write the result to disk and then the next step of the job you would reload the data from disk and then do the next step so with all that writing to disk between each step between each process um, you ended up slowing things down quite a bit so this is where and, and then so basically to solve the problem of writing how difficult it was to write MapReduce jobs you had something come out that was called Hive okay and Hive what it did allow you to write SQL queries um, that would be translated into MapReduce jobs. Okay, so that way you could just express what you want to do as SQL. And then this is where we start getting into sort of the ability to, to define tables on a, in, in a data lake because Hive had to figure out that problem and it did it through a direct restructure saying, hey, this folder is a table, this folder is a table, that folder is a table. But that solves only one of the two problems. Well, how about the whole problem of speed? So this is generally where like Spark comes in. Okay, so Apache Spark, the big difference is also a, you know, big multi-node big cluster kind of MPP system like like map like um, Hadoop but the difference with Spark versus MapReduce is that Spark doesn't necessarily have to write to disk after each step so in that case if you have multiple steps in what you're trying to do you can write to disk at the end okay if you need to write to disk at all so you can continue to do things in memory which allows you to move nimbly much more quicker through the different steps of things you have to do Okay, when it comes to processing a large amount of data across a cluster of computers. And Spark eventually became the sort of de facto standard for doing especially a lot of like um, type of data engineering kind of work on that large, those large sets of data. But it still requires you to write, you know, basically Java, Python, um, Scala, and you could use SQL. But again, you know, um, you end up having, still having to write a lot of imperative code sometimes when working with Spark. Cool. Okay, but again, the data lake's still not perfect. You know, you're still you still are dealing. So yeah, I could write SQL now, which is a lot easier, uh, thanks to Hive. I could um, process things a little bit faster because of Spark. So that's nice. Um, but still, there's a lot of types of operations that were difficult to do, such as doing updates and deletes, just because of the nature of the way the data is being organized at this point. Um, and basically, at this point, you're probably still working with, with sort of older file systems, so a lot of, like a lot of CSV and JSON files. So all of this is, you know, also kind of 
bottlenecking. So there's still this huge need. So essentially what happens is that you generally would end up ETLing, ETLing your data to your data lake. That would be your first stop. And you, that would be where all your data goes. And then the data that you really, really need to do sort of high priority analytics on, you would then ETL a subset of that data to a data warehouse. And then from the data warehouse, you take that data and break it up. Again, that data warehouse is not just for one person. It might be for different parts of your business. So then each part of your business gets what's called a data mart, which is like a little mini warehouse inside your warehouse, um, which would generally oftentimes end up resulting in you making many copies of the data and then, you know, so forth and so forth. So this becomes like, so sort of starting to become this big elongated mess because there's all these sort of steps, also sorts of copies of data. It becomes tough to kind of track all of it. Okay. And that's where we start getting to the idea of a data lake house. The idea is like, well, we'd like to do more with the data lake. We'd like to basically be able to do what you can do in a data warehouse and data lake. And the things that the data warehouse provided that, that the data lake was not quite there yet on is one ease of use two um performance uh three um the ability to do all sorts of updates and delete type operations to be to be able to do all sorts of like things like being able to roll back mistakes uh isolate changes um all these kinds of things okay and for the most part all of those have kind of been solved as far as doing them on your data lake so when it comes to ease of use Okay, that's where the Dremio platform comes in. Dremio is, I mean, solves the performance problem and solves the ease of use problem. Essentially, the Dremio platform makes it where you have this sort of one interface between all your data sources. So you can connect all your different uh, sources of data to your to Dremio, whether you're using Dremio as a software, you know, uh, cluster, or you're using it as a cloud managed service. Either way, you can connect it to all your sources of data. And now all your users have a much easier, nicer interface with that data, uh, where they can document that data, where they can accelerate those queries, um, where they can basically do what they need to do. Um, so there's the ease problem. Okay, you have the performance issue. Now the performance issue gets fixed on many different levels. First is the file format. So you eventually have this uh, file format called Parquet that evolves, um, that becomes a standard. And what Parquet does is that one, it breaks the data into binary, which is faster than text-based data. It's columnar structure. Columnar is gonna be faster for analytics than row-based data. But also it packs in metadata. And you can see this theme later, where basically by providing a little extra data about the data set, tools can then read that data faster. So basically what happens in a Parquet file, the data is, is basically broken up into row groups or groups of row data. Okay, and that row data has metadata so that we can identify like, hey, is this is this a group, group of rows that I really want to like read? Okay, so you have that. But then on top of a group of Parquet files, you have what's called a table format like Apache Iceberg. And Apache Iceberg provides more metadata, not about an individual file, but about the files as a group that allows, you know, basically before we even have to scan those row groups, we can determine, hey, do we need to scan these files at all? Okay, so that adds like another layer for speeding up your scans because again the best way to speed up a scan is by realizing there's things you don't need to scan and not scanning them okay so the meta so basically we can determine not what files we need to scan and once we determine what files we scan with parquet we can determine what groups of rows in that file we need to scan okay and then you have the engine so again this is another place where dremio solves a problem where you have basic dremio uses technologies such as the columnar cloud cache uh data reflections 
and leverages another technology called Apache Arrow, which is a way of representing data in memory in a columnar format. So that way for faster um, for faster analytics. So essentially between all of that, your performance on your data lake is much, much faster. So again, I have, it's much easier for me to use my data lake. It's gonna it's much faster for me to use my data lake now. Okay, um, now with something like Apache Iceberg, you now enable the ability to do updates, deletes, to be able to roll back so you can do like time travel and revert, undo your mistakes. Okay, and then now with this additional technology, Project Nessie, you're able to do more Git-like semantics uh, on your Apache Iceberg tables, which allows you to isolate ETL work. So you can do like a branch and then do your ETL work there before you publish it by doing a merge, kind of like you would with normal code. Um, of course, that's why it's called this data as code paradigm. So between all these technologies, you pretty much now have all the functionality that was on the data warehouse with that easy to use interface, oh, with that performance, with the ability to do all those extra types of transactions. So you're kind of getting there and this whole concept is referred to as the data lake house. The data lake house being, again, a data warehouse we're basically turning your data lake into a data warehouse, okay, where it can basically do the data warehouse work, okay, which is why the data lake is such an ex exciting place right now, because this data lake house, essentially the, the next era of data lakes, is essentially kind of delivering on the promises that data lakes had when they first appeared, and that's pretty, pretty cool, okay, so hopefully this kind of gives you some context on data lakes, data warehouses, uh, data lake houses, so that way you have a little bit more context going forward as we, we are going to be spending a lot of time talking about data lakes and data lake houses and the challenges um, and the benefits and all sorts of things. Um, but if you guys enjoyed this, again, make sure you share this with your friends, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you all later. Have a great day and enjoy and make sure to follow me and Depankar on Twitter and LinkedIn. Okay. Um, just look, look up our names, uh, AM Data Lake House over here. Um, and then you just look up our names on LinkedIn and you'll be good to go. I'll see you all later. Have a great one.